Hi, my name is Patricio Rabao. I'm a producer with WJFF Radio Catskill, and welcome to another edition of the Reporters' Roundtable. Joining me today are journalists Liam Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shawanagak Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pantuso from the River Newsroom. Before we get to today's roundtable, I just want to let you know that the Reporters' Roundtable is now a podcast. Search for WJFF, the Reporters' Roundtable, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and you can find out past episodes. So we have a packed agenda today, so let's get straight to it. Liam, the state Senate and Assembly uh, released their budget proposals the past week. Is there anything there that will affect us locally here in Sullivan County and in Northeast Pennsylvania? Yeah, there are two local issues that have been priorities, one of them which made it into the Assembly's budget proposal, one of them which unfortunately did not make it into the Senate's budget proposal. The one that made it in was... um, There's been talk for months about the Department of Health potentially moving its district office out of Monticello um, to Middletown. They're claiming that they can't find space for the office in Monticello and that they could provide the same level of services from Middletown. Local advocates are saying there's plenty of space in Monticello and Sullivan County needs those services more than Orange County does. Uh, The district Department of Health office does things like air quality and water quality and food quality inspections at summer camps and hotels and motels. So in for Sullivan County, which has a huge population in those areas during the summer, those services are really drastically needed. And talks about that have been ongoing for the past couple of months. And the uh, Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther has been one of uh, the strongest advocates for keeping the office in Monticello and got language included in the assembly proposal to keep the office there. It's pretty simple language, full text of it. It just says, notwithstanding any other provisions of law to the contrary, the money hereby appropriated shall be utilized for the services and expenses of a regional department of health in Monticello, New York. So that's the full text of it. If that makes it through the budget process into the full proposal, or into the full budget, that will probably be the end of the conversation. That will keep the uh, district's Office of Health in Monticello, although it still needs to get through the negotiations between the Assembly and the Senate and the governor about, uh, about the budget. That's the one that made it in. The one that didn't make it in is over on the Senate side. Senator Mike Martucci had, was pushing throughout the process to try and get Billy's Law included in the Senate's budget proposal. Uh, Billy's Law was um, drafted after a local firefighter, William Steinberg, died um, of a heart attack, suffered fighting a fire caused by a serial arsonist who was out due to uh, bail reform. And uh, Billy's Law would make third and fourth degree arson a bail eligible offense, so it would prevent that sort of situation from happening again. And Martucci has been sort of championing this law and was trying to put it into the Senate's budget proposal, but um, it didn't make it in. And for that and for the Senate's budget proposal not really including bail reform or uh, crime-specific things, or at least provisions that Martucci was looking for, uh, Martucci ended up voting against that proposal. So mm. that those are the two sort of most crucial local 
things that I've heard come out of that process so far. Now, it's a tough thing with the bail reform law and it's a, the tragic thing that happens to this firefighter in Sullivan County. I was a little surprised that when you mentioned to me that it did not pass, I thought this would be uh, would pass uh, this particular, just because of the circumstances that, that involved. So, Yeah, I mean, the, I, I don't think not getting it in this kills it. I, I think right. Martucci will still be pushing to pass it, either as part of the overall budget or just going forward. It's just it's a bit of a setback in that it's not going forward for now. Um, now, going forward now, uh, Sullivan County has a long history of dairy farming. Uh, if you go down 17B in Sullivan County, you see many of the dairy farms here that we have here. Uh, and in the past, they have been struggling, and it seems that the struggles are still continuing. Is that correct, Liam? Yeah, the, the struggles have been continuing, but there's also some hope for the farms that remain. Um, I was talking with some dairy farmers over the past few weeks about sort of the struggles they've been facing. And a lot of what they were saying was that it's hard for the smaller farms of Sullivan County to compete on the federal markets if they're trying to sell their milk to the same federal markets that larger farms are, are going for. They really can't compete on cost because the larger farms are more efficient. They can get much more milk out of the individual cows. So their cost of production is lower. With that, sort of a lot of family farms in Sullivan County have either gone under or have turned to doing different things. I was looking at some of the statistics around uh, farms going back generations and um, although this isn't a specific, this isn't maybe a completely accurate statistic, but uh, according to the Census of Agriculture, there were around 2,000 farms with milk cows in the 1940s in Sullivan County, around 200 left by 1974, and only 20 by 2017. So that's chunked by a huge amount right. over the past few generations. But sort of what I've heard is that or what uh, dairy farmers have been saying is that there is still possibility for hope for those farms that remain. It's just the hope lies in focusing on selling locally and the, on sort of producing your own milk. Um, I was talking with Ryan Irwin who, uh, from Myers Century Farm and sort of the way she's gone about trying to farm as a seventh generation dairy farmer is to do more herself. Uh, she's working with Bethel Creamery to uh, sell her, or to bottle her milk locally and sell locally. And she's investing in sort of her own processing plans to bottle her own milk and make her own ice cream. Uh, so it's sort of a shift in focus from trying to compete with larger farms for these federal markets to making maybe higher, uh, more locally focused products. So sort of specializing, sort of going small and focusing on the family and the community that right. made these farms great in the first place. So you have that, that dynamic that people are changing their diets. It, a lot of people going plant-based uh, milk. Uh, you know, our family here, we, we do oat milk and, you know, my daughter drinks oat milk. She drinks whole milk, but she also drinks uh, oat milk. Uh, so there is that change there. And, and I don't know if in your reporting has, has that come up as far as like, there might be a change in the way people eat and it might not go back the way it used to be. And, and so a lot of things have to sort of, I heard like, you know, they have to sort of diverse and sort of uh, grow other crops besides dairy. Has there been any talks about that? Like 
sort of diversifying their crop so they sort of sustain themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think some farms have moved away from um, being dairy farms to um, focusing on other areas. I think something with that, though, is that a lot of farmers want to keep being dairy farmers. Mm. I think that is a tradition that they do want to keep up. And sort of to your point about oat milk and almond milk and non-traditional milk-based products, a few of the people I've talked to just see those as a threat almost, right. as a threat to milk production and to and say that they shouldn't be allowed to call themselves milks or shouldn't be allowed in the same aisle as milk to sort of differentiate those products, which is, I mean, I drink milk, but I also drink oat milk. I know a lot of people who go for mainly oat milk or almond milk and it hadn't wasn't really a perspective I'd encountered before. And it was yeah. fascinating sort of hearing that it's not just an alternative, it's an alternative that could have a huge impact to someone's tradition and to someone's way of life and to someone's heritage. Now, staying on the state legislature, uh, Philip, what, ha- what is some of the latest reporting you have on the state legislature? Yeah, so we just published a big kind of overview of a number of bills that have been proposed. Um, some are moving through committee right now related to essentially shoring up abortion access in New York State in the likely event that Roe v. Wade is overturned um, by the Supreme Court later this year. Um, I think the place to start is, so in 2019, New York passed the Reproductive Health Act, um, which basically what that did is it codified Roe v. Wade's protections in the state constitution. It's essentially a backstop protection in the event that abortion is, is criminalized at the federal level. But there are a number of other kind of ways that the state didn't exactly shore up access um, or make sure that 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 access was, or that that type of care was accessible and well advertised. So there, one of the the bills that that was passed alongside the Reproductive Health Act was the Comprehensive Contraception Coverage Act, which makes insurance coverage of emergency contraception like the Plan B pill available over the counter without a prescription. There's currently um, a bill in the legislature right now, which was introduced by Senator Michelle Hinchy, which would allow, which would basically put more forms of emergency contraception within that purview, including one called Ella, which can be used for up to five days after intercourse and works for kind of a wider variety of women and pregnant people. There's another bill that also was sponsored by by Senator Hinchy that would tackle hospital transparency about reproductive services they offer. So it basically directs the State Department of Health to collect a list of what are called policy-based exclusions from every general hospital across the state and publish that information on its website. The uh, the data that that would collect would also help lawmakers get a more accurate sense of like where reproductive healthcare is accessible across the state. I think probably the most game-changing piece of legislation right now is a bill that would require all New York State insurers to cover abortion. You know, right now, you it can be paid for through non-federal Medicaid. is obviously a, a boon to low-income people. And most insurers in state cover the procedure under maternity care, but not everybody has maternity care. So, um, and there are, of course, exclusions. So, Getting that in there, I think, would really shore up a financial piece of this. And in Governor Hochul's executive budget, 
she kind of describes uh, a need to do that as well as part of like an overall kind of increase in funding uh, toward health across the board. One other bill would amend, this is the equality amendment that's sponsored by Senator Liz Kruger from the city. It would amend the state constitution to include proactive protections against discrimination for pregnancy and pregnancy outcomes. Um, so basically a more kind of um, progressive, on, like on the front foot protection there. And then final, finally, uh, there is a bill from Westchester State Senator Alessandra Biaggi that would normalize donating to groups who directly fund abortions. But essentially, you can do like a, a tax write-off for that kind of donation. So there's a lot of, um, I think, kind of renewed urgency to try to get some of these across the line, given the, the changing federal picture. And one stat that kind of blew my mind from the story that we reported is that since in the 49 years since, since Roe v. Wade, there have been more than 1,300 abortion restrictions passed in states across the country. And about half of those have come in the last 10 years. And of course, 2021 was, was probably the worst year on record. There's, I think, something like 24, 25 states across the country that have passed or have Bit like further restrictions, like Florida just did this 15-week ban. Texas obviously did it last year, and there are a, a couple dozen other states that have that have what are called like trigger laws. So in the event that Roe v. Wade is overturned on the federal level, at the state level they have these instant bans that would go into place. So you know, I think I think what's going to happen is you're going to have states that where this care is available and states where it's not. And New York is trying to, and, and advocates for reproductive health care anyway. New York are trying to make sure that. New York is a state where this kind of care is available and accessible to like a wide range of pregnant people in the state. Now, you had an event recently that I, I was interested in in, listen, in learning about. Let's talk about this event you had last week uh, with students and educators about the, the effects of the pandemic and what did you uh, what came out of that? Yeah, so this was this was a panel conversation that we had um, last Thursday, uh, the 10th, and we essentially just covered, you know, it was kind of a wide ranging conversation covering the effects of the pandemic on learning and learning loss and, and social and emotional development. And then kind of at the end, we, we spent some time discussing if there's maybe an opportunity here to rethink sort of how public education works, not even in the grand sense, but just like, do we change how we, how much weight we put on like attendance, for example. And uh, like, it was honestly like a really, a really great conversation. And if folks are interested, the, the video is on the River Newsroom's website, click events at the top of our page. But a couple, you, you know, a, a couple of kind of things that stuck out for me, we did, we, we presented this in partnership with the Institute for Disaster Mental Health at SUNY New Paltz. And we had the deputy director of that institute on the panel. She's a psychology professor who, who's recently written a book about what she calls generation disaster, which is the sort of the young generation today and the sort of cascading series of existential crises that they're growing up with and the kind of, you know, 24 seven awareness that they all have of it because of social media. She shared some statistics at the, at the top. A couple that stuck out to me are that over the past year, 15% of youth reported experiencing at least one major depressive episode. And another stat that I, that was really striking to me is that one in four students who graduated high school in 2020 delayed their plans with regards to college because of the pandemic. 
like one one in four is pretty is pretty shocking. That doesn't mean they're not going to college, but it means they delayed or otherwise kind of changed what they were thinking. So I thought that was pretty pretty shocking. And I think one of the one of the biggest takeaways I think that came out with regards to to masking and everything is now you know all the schools are back in person. Obviously, in, in almost all the schools, not all of them have gone away from having a mask mandate, but there was so much for, for as abrupt as the transition to virtual learning was two years ago now, there was, I think, a lot of leniency and a lot of leeway kind of baked into that transition because it was so kind of disruptive and, and unanticipated in a lot of ways. Like there was like a lot of a lot of forgiveness given to, to students who were maybe struggling. There was a lot of effort to make sure that everyone had the technology that they needed. Um, there was a lot of kind of just care, as much care as could be given, given how disruptive everything was at the time. And there just wasn't, it seems like both the teachers and students on the panel said this, in going back to learning in person, it was kind of just treated as if like, oh, we're back to normal now, as if the last two years hadn't really happened. And, every, and a lot of teachers just went right back to expecting the students to be in every single class and participating in the same way that they had previously. Whereas some of these students, I, you know, I went to, one teacher on the panel was in 10th grade, teaches 10th grade, you know, her students, she had students who hadn't been, they're halfway through high school at that point, and they hadn't even been in a classroom in their high school because they've been out for two, for two years. You know, I, I actually, I was an adjunct at SUNY New Paltz in the fall, and I, I could see just over the course of the semester, that was the first semester that, that SUNY New Paltz was back in person. And everybody, I think, was excited, if a little trepidatious at the beginning, to be back in the classroom. And even by halfway through the semester, all of the students just seemed like really burned out. Like, I, I just think it's been an extremely taxing year for the students in particular. The effect that that's had on teachers is I think they're kind of rethinking what they prioritize in the classroom, right? Um, we had two teachers on the panel. You know, one of them said that she she's really trying to go slower now, really spending a lot more time thinking about the kind of social and emotional components of like what it means to be a teacher, especially in a public school when, you know, teachers are oftentimes sort of like first responders to things, right? Or like they're, they're almost like emergency services or they're daycare providers. So I think that there's like a lot more, from my sense is that teachers are like focusing way more, thinking way more about those dimensions of the job. And, and one, one thing that a lot, everybody on the panel thought might be good is like moving away from things or at least trying to change how they operate things like the regents exams, which, you know, these sort of kind of standardized tests that just don't really fit neatly onto the kind of complicated texture of experience that a lot of students have right now. So yeah, I, I, it was a really, it was really enlightening and at times even emotional conversation. Yeah, I, I took I took a lot out of it personally. No, it's it, I think it's great that you had it only because like, you know, we're all going through this and we're all experiencing the same thing in different ways. You know, just the just the emotional stress of being in the pandemic as an adult uh, dealing with job situations, how we figure out, you know, work remote and not work remote 
And just the amount, he said, the students also are getting that effect. Uh, you know, I'm hearing teachers who teach younger students that there are behavior issues and, and things like that that come up. But also speak to, you know, college professors like, like you, you adjunct. And, and I know that transitions for a lot of college professors was just crazy. How you teach, you know, online, switch from online and, and now going back to, to teaching in person and not only, not only just getting used to that again, but also just the fear of being out in the public and teaching crazy past two years. And I could accept just you saying that the, the, the students now, like in your junior year, have not been in the classroom. What what effects does that have in the future? I don't, I don't know. I don't think we know yet. You know, yeah, that's uh, the thing. But there's, there's a lot of this. A lot of these effects are going to be kind of yeah. long term effects. That, you know, no, enough time hasn't passed to even really be able to measure them yet. I think I think after this, I think we all need therapy, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> it's a, it's been a crazy two years, so wow. yeah, yeah. And it's, it's it's a topic we definitely want to keep a track on because uh, I don't I don't want to be uh, bearer of bad news, but I always see what's happening in Europe and other countries, and it just seems like it's the precursor of what's happening. It's going to happen here soon, and now we, it seems like we're all gone away with masks and everything, and will it come back again? I don't know. And will we go back to this weird shift? But uh, I understand the need to go back to quote unquote normalcy. I also understand. We want to live and be here yeah and i think there's there's i think that there are just probably arenas in life where the return to normal needs a little more attention and maybe we even need to question what normal was yeah um I, you know, I think there's a you know there's a similar conversation minus the kind of emotional dimension of this and with like the return to the workplace right and how much people <laughs> want to work from home and what the trade-offs are from going to the office and etc so you know, I think that there should be that same level of kind of like cost benefit analysis, essentially, with um, with schools too. Yeah, no, I agree, and I'm glad you said that uh, also earlier that about the there was care given to when the beginning of the pandemic when we're switching over to online, but it doesn't seem like it's as much as going back. And he said that there's a dynamic shift uh, for everybody. Uh, Joe, now bringing it back to Sullivan County here. Now, for his legislature, uh, one thing I heard in legislature and you heard also was the emergency calls have been up. You could talk about the emergency calls and why were there any reasons given that crime is up in Sullivan County? Yeah, um, well, I don't know necessarily if it's crime as a statistic, but it's uh, fire, EMS and police calls are all up year over year. So right. there is 18 percent more fire calls from 20. Uh, 20 in the last year, 2021 to now, there was, or I guess from 2020 to 2021, I should say. Uh, and then there are 12% more EMS calls and 8% more uh, police calls. I think the point you were referring to is that there are currently 16 homicide suspects yes. that are yeah. in the Sullivan County Jail, which, uh, you know, the undersheriff reported is unprecedented for Sullivan County. Right. Uh, and I don't really know the background on who these folks are or all that, but just uh, so on that sense, yes, that number, that statistic is up. But on the fire part specifically, I think it's interesting because like within the last week, even it seemed like there was a major structure fire every single day. Uh, the reason given, well, I guess one thing on the fires, I'll, I'll highlight one of them that happened in my, uh, where I live in the village of Liberty. Uh, there was a fire at Barkley Gardens Apartments uh, late on uh, uh, last Tuesday night, or I guess it would be the Tuesday before last. And uh, it was uh, almost midnight, a little by 11 o'clock, and, and they went in. This is an apartment complex that uh, houses 
uh, seniors and also people who were disabled. So it was a very, uh, it was on the fifth floor of the fire. We don't have a lot of fifth floor fires in Sullivan County very frequently. Uh, a lot of different departments responded. One of the firefighters from Liberty, uh, Stephen Vogler, uh, actually had to bail out. Uh, and that is uh, because the room was about to flash over, which is when the heat, the gases uh, get to a point where they're going to combust. And the air is literally to a point where it's about to be on fire. So he bailed out on a rope out a window. And uh, thankfully, the Monticello Fire Department uh, was there with an aerial ladder truck that was able to rescue him. But could have been a very uh, scary situation. The tenant of that apartment uh, had second and third degree burns, uh, but there were, and, and of course, uh, uh, Vogler had uh, some burns as well, but uh, no, no fatalities, thankfully. So, but I was, when I was talking to the public safety commissioner, Tom Farney, like, why are these numbers up? He gave population growth, the fact that we're a growing county uh, as a reason why uh, he believes that, you know, just when, with more people, comes more calls, but uh, will definitely be something to watch uh, going forward. The other topic, uh, which I was going to touch on today is, you know, you were just talking about how we're still in a global pandemic when yeah. it comes to COVID-19. Well, we have a potential another health situation that is not necessarily of risk to us as human beings, but it could be very devastating to the agricultural industry, which is the highly pathogenic uh, avian flu. Uh, which just for some scientific knowledge, this illness lives in the respiratory and intestinal tract of birds. Uh, it can be picked up from contact with infected feces surfaces or through air, through aerial transmission from farm to farm. It can be transported on infected feed, clothing, equipment, and can be spread uh, through the wild bird populations encountering domestic birds and other living creatures such as rodents and insects. And when it gets on your farm, it can spread very rapidly. Uh, and in New York last month, there were two confirmed cases that we know of that were reported, which was a pheasant flock in Dutchess County. And there was a backyard flock in Ulster County. Now, I have heard rumors that there were other cases near Ellenville that were reported recently, which I haven't seen confirmed on the site. And my belief is, is that even when you know local vets and, and farms are reporting stuff, I assume there's a bit of a lag time with getting that information out there. But the big concern is, is that there's over 250 wild bird cases in the South, right? Because right now all the birds, you know, they go South for winter, they're starting to gravitate back. And that's really the concern is when they start coming back to Sullivan County uh, or any of the Hudson Valley areas, you know, I heard from one farmer that you just have to assume that every wild bird that comes back up here has it. Uh, and a lot of waterfowl uh, they might be non-symptomatic. So just like you have to worry about asymptomatic people with COVID spreading the virus or whatever, you also have to worry about some wild, you know, waterfowl that could might not show any symptoms of this bird flu, but have it. So, so far, no uh, farms in Sullivan County have it, but here's the problem with it. If it gets on your farm, you have to depopulate. So for example, in Indiana, there was a turkey that had it or a few turkeys and they had to kill 30,000 turkeys. Think, And so, you know, as one farmer from uh, Daniel Bry from Bry's Egg Farm in Bethel told me, he says, you know, you'd be in business one day and out of business the next if this comes on your farm. So a lot of farms have these intense protocols. Uh, They're limiting foot traffic because, you know, people coming on their boots, it could be on trucks, you know, people are disinfecting when they're delivering feed. So th there's a lot of steps being taken. And right now, there's no need to panic. Uh, but uh, as one 
as the Hudson Valley Foie Gras manager told me, he says, like, if DEFCON 1 means the bombs are dropping, right now they're on level 2, which is they're really concerned. You know, if it gets in the county, it could be a very bad situation. And I'm not even, and this is me just trying to draw connections here, beyond just the fact that it's going to put these family businesses and all these great agricultural people out of business. You know, you also have to think, what is that effect going to have on the market economy, right? We're already seeing crazy inflation and other stuff. Could this have the same effect economically as well? So, so those are all things to, to be concerned about with, with the avian flu. And uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension is heading up the response effort um, across the state. So anyone out there that's listening is trying to, you know, learn more about it, uh, definitely check out what they're reporting. Yeah, definitely. We had the Cornell Cooperative Extension er earlier uh, this month at the local edition uh, weekdays at 630. Um, talk about the avian flu, and it it is scary. I know it is, is highly unlikely that will pass on to humans, but there is that small, small percentage that it will. Um, have you talked to, Southern County also has a lot of hobby farms and have a lot of small farms. Like we, we, you and I know people who have chickens at home. Um, have you talked to them about, you know, are they nervous about their chickens, about their flock? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, them people who run small farms. I'm just talking talk to people who have chickens as pets. Yeah, I haven't spoken to uh, any particular chicken owners yet, but I do know that a lot of the farms I had been speaking to wanted to share the message with people who own chickens to try to keep them from going out, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate for the chickens because for those that are not, you know, uh, that have these chickens as pets for eggs and just actually I know some people that like love them as members of their family and they're like pets and everything like that. Uh, you know, it's it's sad and you're feeling in a way that you're being like inhumane by not letting your you know your chickens roam freely and enjoy it and stay inside all the time. But these farmers are encouraging them to have people keep their chickens inside as much as possible or like not from roaming freely because like I said, they have to assume every one of these birds that's coming up from Florida, from Kentucky, from all these warm places could potentially have this virus. And, uh, you know, more birds that get it, the more likelihood of it spreading, because like you were saying, I don't, you know, we can't uh, necessarily to our knowledge. I, there's not too much to worry about as far as worrying about human beings catching it themselves. You know, it can still get on your shoes or your cars and all this stuff like Shecton Mills, who I was talking to, when they said when they deliver feed before their truck or anything goes on a farm, they stop where they're at and they disinfect the whole, you know, truck and everything like that. And the workers' boots, they have pools set up, disinfectant pools when you come in. So like, so that's more so where it is. Because if, if your birds get it, it could pass on to something that you could carry to a market or whatever. And then now you have to worry about it going around. So it's interesting because right now we're talking about this, you know, terrible situation that's occurring in Europe with Ukraine, which is just devastating. And then we have the pandemic happening. And, you know, in a way, I feel like this is not getting as much attention as it probably should uh, from, you know, mainstream, you know, uh, media sources and stuff. Uh, but it, it could have very devastating effects on, on the agricultural industry. Um, and uh, Chris, now you attended the uh, always attending planning board meetings because you're always on top of things. And it seems like Cresco Labs finally got the approval for uh, building their uh, warehouse, I guess, or manufacturing warehouse. What are the next yeah. steps? They're going to, they got their final approval. Cresco Labs will now begin uh, 
uh, a, a rapid construction of a 380,000 square foot uh, growing facility on the old site of the Shred Knife and before that Channel Master, which has been a, just a concrete slab sitting there for several years and before that just a dead factory. This is uh, probably going to be quite impactful, not just for Ellenville, um, uh, Warsing, but also for Sullivan County and parts of Orange County, anywhere where people who want a job like this might be drawn from. And, and the other effect of it is if they're going to have 400 to 500 jobs, good jobs, where are these people going to live? I mean, unless they've already got place to live, you know, this is going to put more pressure on rental housing and uh, possibly uh, spur more uh, housing construction. And uh, that could come down in Middletown where there are some major uh, developments uh, getting going. Uh, but we will need more housing for all these people. So anyway, that's that that came through last night. And, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. The the the, the final kind of discussion that uh, that took place concerned water supplies. Uh, the Cresco Labs facility will take about 90,000 gallons a day. Um, the village of Elnaville has uh, said that they'll provide it uh, for a backup and a second uh, pipe. They'll, they can go to the, uh, uh, the, the hamlet of Napanok. They have a separate water system. And in fact, now uh, it's, it's, we've reached the point where Elnaville, Napanok, uh, and uh, the new Wawarsing district are all connected. And Wawarsing is going to be connected to Cahonkson. So there's going to be a water connection up and down the Rondout Valley between those four places. Uh, so th there will be water, but there, there is a concern. You know, you've got Ellenville Hospital there in the event of something unimaginable, but maybe not considering what's going on in uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, um, how can they ensure that water will be there for the hospital? And there is a shutoff valve. Um, if it comes down to it, um, the uh, human patients at the hospital will get water and the uh, thousands of um, full-grown cannabis plants, nine foot tall, some of them, uh, oh. will not. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 for Cresco Labs Insurance Company to worry about. But, uh, you know, um, there, there was a good feeling at the end of it. And here's the thing I took away, because, you know, I've been going to planning boards for quite a long time now, and I've seen um, some good applications that just sailed through because the people making the application, done the work, understood the zoning, knew what they could do on the site that they had, and so on and so on. And I've seen other that have just been a total disaster, expensive and a waste of money from day one because the applicant hadn't taken into consideration, oh no, you're not in the R2, you're in the R1, you're limited to this, 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 you know, and they, they tried to sort of force the zoning. This wasn't that case. This These people, the Cresco Labs, and they do have experience, this is their 19th facility. They've done this 18 times before. So they, they, they know how to cross the and dot the eyes, and they had a good team of lawyers. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Jason, Justin Ryder from uh, their firm down in New Windsor, Ryder, Wyman, and something. Anyway, uh, they they just had it all down. And when they were pressed on some information, they came back quickly. The board didn't have any issues of sort of waiting around for for anything because, after all, Cresco really wanted this done. They mm -hmm. need product. 
And um, at the end of the thing, uh, Mary Lou Christiana, the uh, planning board's uh, attorney, complimented them and said, you know, how how quick and easy this had been and uh, what a pleasure they were to work with. So I don't know, lesson to everybody who's going, every developer, everybody who's going to a planning board, take a note of, of this particular application and see how to do it, how to get it done, do your homework, make sure you know what goes on in the zoning and uh, don't waste your own money. So that was that was uh, an interesting thing. The other thing I was working on today, which I'll sort of jump to now, because I mean, with Cresco Labs, hey, this is this is going to be a transforming thing yeah. for our area because of jobs, yeah. because this is uh, the, the the incoming wedge of legal cannabis, which is going to change society to some extent. But um, the other thing I did today was there's this competition. Uh, Pat, Pat Ryan, the Ulster County Executive, was trumpeting this earlier. Uh, this way. Um, and it's an interesting concept, on-demand electric microtransit. So uh, what this means is, well, actually, it, it, the quote that I, I lifted for a little article was, the future of electric vehicles is golf carts. Now, that came from the Harvard Business Review. Um, so hopefully uh, Elon won't see that and immediately start heading towards Harvard Business Review to challenge them to go mano a mano, you know, <laughs> the way he likes to. But um, anyway, but this thing is called Ulster Connect, and it's the proposal to push Kingston and Ellenville into being the two ends of a electric microtransit kind of program. What, you, what this is, you have an app on the phone, you call in, you say, I, I need a ride to somewhere in Kingston, uh, from Ellenville or vice versa, and uh, they, the, 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 the center sort of spins you around a little bit and they say, go to the corner or whatever, right? Not too far away. Go there and you meet up there with three or four other people who also want to go to Kingston to, to that area. And a couple of moments later, uh, one of these little micro transit vehicles arrive, uh, arrives and they look like they look like little buses, like mm. cut down buses. They look like, you know, kind of like you might, might um, buses for hobbits. Was like, <laughs> when I saw them, they, were, they looked very sweet. Um, but the, 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 the concept is something that I remember uh, on visits long ago to um, Istanbul, where the Turks have this system called the Dolmush, uh, which is a taxi that is shared. And there were often old uh, American cars that had been expanded and uh, were falling apart. But that, that was another matter. But um, in fact, I do remember looking down through a hole in the floor at the highway, hurrying past my feet. But that was another matter altogether. But the idea there was that they just went through and they stopped and picked people up and they dropped people off all, 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 all along the way. And it supplemented the, the city uh, mass transit system and supplemented the buses and everything else. So this, but this is now spread out to here, where we are at this point still struggling with Ellenville has like, uh, what was it, two buses a day to Kingston. I mean, it's just not enough. And if we're going to get, say, workers coming from Kingston to work at Cresco Labs or maybe the Neverly Project when it gets done, they need more. We need more of that technology. And they may not want to run cars. We may be beginning to step into uh, an era where rather than have to get a car, even out here, we can get a, um, a an, an electric micro transit to take us to, I don't know, shop right them, yeah, whatever. You know, I mean, it's 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 a uh, it's an interesting step, but of course, it's all being set up in this New York way, which is um, 
this is one of there's 16 other competitors for the uh, for the phase one money, and then if they get that money, then they go forward to compete in phase two. You know, and it's uh, I don't know. This it's just it just strikes me as kind of a crazy way to do things. But that's yeah. me. Uh, you know, apparently this is the way it's done. And if they get it, there's an 85 million dollar pool of money. So. No, because you know, Sullivan County has a new uh, transit system here. We have the buses that does you know these loops around the county, mm. and um, it's is it's successful. I know the first year was free. Now they think they're charging two dollars per ride. Or I think a, a round trip ride. I'm not sure, but uh, the the biggest complaint of it is you know the county is such a big county. You know, one county, one side of the county doesn't really talk to the other side of the county. So mountainous. Just say from where I live. Uh, just to it's a half a mile walk just to get to the main road. Uh, so mm-hmm. and then from there, just to get anywhere, it's a 15 minute drive. I, I see it useful for people who live in like a city center, like Monticello, Liberty, or, or like Ellenville, if you're down in, t- in the center city. But when it gets to these other places on the outliners, it gets tough. But I sort of like this, this, this micro transit that I guess is basically carpooling, it seems like everyone sort of they match everyone up for uh, if you're going particular. Des- destination is sort of carpool everyone to a some similar uh, way. Is that correct? Is that my, my understanding it correctly? It's kind of, kind of, yeah. But what it offers though is like any time of day. It's not yeah. set to a bus schedule. You're, you're, you're not tied to that. Right. So you know, if you're caught up in something, you know, you had to whatever do something, and then oh, it's three o'clock. I really got to get somewhere. You can call then and get set up to for, for a uh, microtransit. Maybe at three fifteen. It's, it's not scheduled and other people will be getting onto that thing too. And maybe you'll stop in Rochester or stop in Marbletown on your way to Kingston to pick up more people, which would be the kind of Dolmish kind of approach or the Jitney approach, I think yeah. in uh, some places in the Caribbean. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a getting away from having to have a fixed schedule, which is the killer cost for all kinds of rail and bus service, right? You know, I mean, the empty train and the empty bus are, 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 are the, you know, the red yeah. <laughs> built into the budget there, right? So if you don't have that and, and, and you have a little vehicle, um, okay, so say you have a, a meet uh, for a vehicle at uh, Liberty Square in Ellenville and you and three others are going to be on it, right? And then five others appear. Well, another one comes. There's the, there's the capacity for a second one to, 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 to come in to build it up. So it's sort of like the bus is arriving in segments uh, and it, not on a schedule, but when, when people want it. So that, that, might, that might be a, a, an intriguing uh, difference and a way for things to, uh, to, to, to go. We'll have to see. Of course, first of all, they have to win this um, New York State competition for the money. One other thing I'd like to mm-hmm. say, if I can quickly, yeah. um, March 27th, there's going to be a uh, uh, kind of a, a rally event, prayer vigil, whatever you like to call it, uh, in Liberty Square, uh, Ellenville, I think starting at noon to one uh, for Ukraine. Uh, I was up at the uh, uh, Holy Trinity uh, Catholic Church, uh, it's the Greek rite, not the Roman, uh, for Ukraine on Sunday. They were packing up uh, medical supplies uh, to send to Ukraine. And the, uh, the local Ukraine community is definitely aroused. Other people are stepping in. Um, people are doing what they can to mitigate this horrific disaster that's being inflicted by uh, a certain madman over there. Yes. So that's on the 27th in Liberty Square, Elmville. 
Uh, Liam, how about you? Have mm-hmm. you uh, covered any uh, Ukrainian events or has uh, the Ukrainian uh, war has uh, crept into your reporting so far? Yeah, we've covered it to a certain extent. Um, the, there have been a few events uh, from the Ukrainian community in Glens Bay, volunteers with the St. Voldemir uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church in Glens Bay, uh, recently made uh, pierogi, which is like a type of filled dumpling as a fundraiser for Ukraine. And um, those were all, I believe, uh, snapped up and they it was a very successful fundraiser. And yeah, I think in general, just seeing a lot of sympathy, yeah, a lot of people trying to help in whatever way they can and trying to express sympathy in whatever way they can. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us uh, for another edition for the Reporters Roundtable around Radio Casco. Today we were joined by Liam Mayo, the River Reporter, Chris Shaw of the Shawanagak Journal, and Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County, and Philip Pantuzo from the River Newsroom. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next month.